It's Jobs Friday. It's Jobs Friday. We should celebrate, right? You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I am Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. It is Friday. David, we just got in from a fire alarm. I'm still thawing out, uh, although they did give us some Cracker Jacks, I guess, as a... You've got your beard, though. You should be warm. For those of you listening, Matt looks like Forrest Gump when he doesn't (laughs) shave for like six months. That's an exact depiction of what Matt looks like. Not like six months. I could not shave for six months, and I would look like Forrest Gump after two days. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, that's fun. All right. Let's move on to the headlines. First headline of the day, it is indeed Jobs Friday. This is from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, headline is, in October, jobs report, U.S. hiring picks up strongly. David blew it out of the water. 204,000 jobs. Forecast was for 120,000. I have been worried about what October was going to look like because of the government shutdown. This is amazing, right? How bad is that forecast? 120,000 what, over 200,000 jobs. I would love to have a job where you could miss by about 100% and still be called an expert in the economy. I should also mention that the prior two months were uh, uh, revised upward by a combined 60,000 jobs. So the economy is... It's good news, apparently, but I... I really don't pay much attention to the jobs numbers or the GDP numbers. The, the economy is so complex at a macro level, I think it's very hard to glean any useful information from one month of a jobs report. I, can you tell me what, what the March jobs report looked like? No. I, I mean, this stuff moves over so quickly, <laughs> so quickly. And it's, to me, it's more noise than signal when it comes to investing. Do you disagree? No. No, I, I, don't, I don't disagree. And, and also, given how much... how, how the magnitude of the revisions after the fact. So we're seeing 60,000 jobs added to the prior two months. Uh, with the GDP number we saw earlier this week, GDP came in at 2.8% growth, uh, advanced reading on the third quarter. The advanced reading on the second quarter is 1.7%. The final reading on the second quarter was 2.5%. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, I, I just wouldn't, I think you're right. Don't base investment decisions on this, but should the Fed be basing taper decisions on this they they'll, they'll deck take taper david they'll take the, the data the data as it comes it. in deck taper deck, okay deck taper and then we're gonna have jan <laughs> taper and feb taper i can't wait no it's gonna be I, amazing I, I mean anyone who listens to the show regularly they know that i don't put too much weight into the fed either these are things that we can't quantify it's very hard to know when the fed's going to do things what's the effect going to be on interest rates on the economy so it's nice news but don't base your investment decisions. I was originally thinking that the Fed would be tapering by the end of this year, or earlier in this year. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to happen. Headline, headline. headline number two. All right. You're bored well, with the Fed. <laughs> headlines that are actually about businesses, or quasi-businesses, I guess. Quasi. We have Fannie Mae sending Treasury $8.6 billion, that's billion with a B, of its profit. So they've had net income of $8.7. They're sending $8.6, which is essentially... essentially all of it. And this is because of the amendment that was made in late 2012, in August 2012, that basically says the Treasury gets all of your all your net worth over it at Fannie Mae. The same thing at Freddie Mac. They reported big profits too. And that's all going to the Treasury. And the big headline here is the government and the taxpayers are close to recouping kind of what they put into Fannie Mae. Now, that doesn't mean the conservatorship's over. That doesn't mean the bailout is done. Uh, they're still going to want probably a pretty handsome profit on top of uh, that investment. And Given the guidelines now, there isn't a clear path for Fannie Mae to get out of this situation of the profits being swept to the Treasury. So that's one. I, I think that's one of the big stories here, obviously, particularly for, for those uh, listeners and viewers who are looking at the perform- particularly the performance of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac stock over the past year. The other thing is, and this is from that Forbes article, uh, 
it, it read Fannie Mae saw $8.7 billion in net income during the third quarter of 2013 and $8.6 billion in comprehensive income. This compares favorably to the third quarter of 2012 when the mortgage financer reported $1.8 billion in net income. So $8.7 billion of net income to $1.8 billion in net income compares favorably. Yeah, it does sound like it compares favorably, but they're not really comparable periods. So one of the things here is that Last year, there was a $2 billion provision against credit losses. In the normal course of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's business, they have to take provisions against losses on their credit. This quarter, there was a $2.6 billion benefit. That's a huge profitability swing, and that is not something that's going to be consistent in the, in the earnings of uh, Fannie Mae uh, going forward. Also, there was $1.2 billion in foreclosed property income uh, this quarter. That's also not something that, that investors uh, or speculators, as the case may be, can expect to see going forward. Yes, the results are going to look much different as, as years roll on. They have to reduce the, the holdings in their mortgage portfolio that they, that they invest for income there. Uh, they're increasing the fees that they charge to guarantee loans. So the face and kind of the structure of Fannie Mae is going to be changing all while their capital base is slowly being taken out from under them based on that amendment in 2012 there. So it's slowly being wound down. The operations are changing. So it's going to be an interesting story to watch for the next couple of years. Right. Headline number three from Bloomberg. Uh, Bass-backed NMI prices share sale at top of range. Was that a sentence? It's a tongue twister. (laughs) Bloomberg has a way with words when it comes to headlines. But, but essentially what this is is um, Kyle Bass, uh, hedge fund manager, uh, was part of a group that backed NMI. Uh, mortgage insurer just went public. Um, this follows the, the public, uh, the, the IPO for Ascent Group, yep. which is another um, uh, mortgage insurer. Uh, NMI was, was founded in 2011. Ascent was founded in Founded in 2009, started doing business mm-hmm. in 2010. This was a reaction to how beat up the existing mortgage insurers got. So you look at uh, Radian, look at MGIC. They have been on the comeback trail. The, the businesses are improving. Mm-hmm. The stocks but, have been surging. W- right. And, and, but without a doubt, during the financial crisis, they were, they were knocking on death's door. I, maybe, it wasn't, maybe some people would say it wasn't that extreme. But anyway... Uh, a lot of financiers looked at this as an opportunity to put some capital into new mortgage insurers. Um, there's also the opportunity here, the potential opportunity, as the government gets out of this business a little bit. We just be, talked about Fannie Mae. Right. Yep. There'll be a bigger piece of the pie for private mortgage insurers to, uh, to take. So, uh, so you got NMI and Ascent, pretty clean balance sheets, um, maybe a nice runway for them. Yeah, it doesn't seem... Like a, like a bad time to be going public. I mean, we've seen the stocks surge in the other competitors, and we, I just mentioned the fees that Fannie Mae charge, charges. As they increase those, that could potentially uh, deter people from going through Fannie Mae in terms of the insurance. They could go over to these new companies, these new mortgage insurers, and they could get, take some of that share. So there seems to be a market here, and it's probably going to get bigger. I, I know you haven't looked closely at these, but if I put a gun to your head and say NMI or Radian, which would you buy? Which direction would you go? I would probably go NMI just because they don't, even though Radian, the book of the business, is, is turning over, they're writing new business, mm-hmm. the new company doesn't have any of the legacy bad stuff before 2009. So I'd probably play it safe and go with the new guys. Fair play. All right, in focus for today. Yesterday, I wrote an article on, on Fool.com. I think we have a, a nice little picture. There it is. A One, wonderful article. Well, thank you, Dave. You're so humble. One reason to own Bank of America's stock. There's only one. Right. Well, 
to, to me, what it boils down to, and this is when you take everything into account. This isn't just a, a blind look at the numbers kind of thing. But once you take everything into account, if you determine that the, that the worth of the business, what the business is worth, is greater than, and, and maybe to a significant extent greater than, where the market prices it, own, it, own that stock. Yeah, that's true for any company. Go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it's Bank of America or anybody else. And what I did for Bank of America here, there, there are a lot of different ways to approach the idea of how much is a business worth. In this case, I broke Bank of America up. I broke it up into its component pieces, the businesses uh, under which it reports, and tried to, on a, for, the, for the wonks out there, uh, look at a comps-based approach. So how do similar businesses, how are they valued by the market? Mm-hmm. And then looked at how the, the entire entity uh, was valued once you look at those what, individual pieces. So for starters... Look at the traditional banking business, consumer and business banking uh, and, and global banking. Those are Bank of America's, you can probably call them vanilla banking mm-hmm. businesses, right? That's right. pretty fair. Yeah. Both of these are earning 20% plus on the equity that they're allocated mm-hmm. um, by Bank of America. So, 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 you, so you looked at this group and kind of carved it out and says, what if this was a standalone exactly. entity, yeah. just the core banking right, business? Right, right, So, So – ROEs above 20%. Now, now I said, how would, a, how would a standalone business, how would a standalone bank with that kind of earnings uh, be valued? There aren't banks out there mm-hmm. earning 20% on their, on their equity right now. So what I did was I took a, a variety of banks that are at the top of their game, uh, earning relatively high returns. It, in, it includes uh, Wells Fargo. It includes U.S. Bank Corp. And look at how they're valued. And at the end of the day, I applied a 2.3 times multiple to the equity that's allocated to consumer and business banking and, and global banking, mm-hmm. valued that group at $122 billion. Uh, CRES, which is Consumer Real Estate Services, that's also a relatively vanilla banking business, but that includes the, the bones of, uh, of Countrywide that are still around. Mm-hmm. It's been hit with most of the lawsuits, and it's a, it's a business that just really hasn't been profitable. But I think there's still value there in the business because there's a nationwide footprint. Mm-hmm. There's a really good mortgage banking business there. Once all the legacy right. stuff there's still is a moved top out. five mortgage originator in the country here. So, so I put like a uh, basically a, a death's door kind of valuation, half book value on that. So that's worth I figure that's worth about twelve billion under that uh, scenario. Global markets this is the investment banking business. The best. Comparison you could probably draw would be Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley as a, as a standalone company. So you've got Bank of America's former uh, investment banking business, which was really so-so, mm-hmm. it was whatever. But then they added Merrill Lynch's investment banking business in there, which, aside from the fact that it helped crater Merrill Lynch itself, it is actually a pretty good investment bank mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So Goldman Sachs trades at about 10 times its net income, its trailing net income. Global markets at Bank of America is no Goldman Sachs, so I said I'll give it an 8x multiple. Mm-hmm. That values that business at about $14 billion. Uh, GWIM, uh, Global Wealth and Investment Management, this is a stellar business. This is a pretty stellar business within Bank of America. Same kind of thing. You've got the, the historical Bank of America business, the U.S. trust business, but then also the big uh, Merrill Lynch, the thundering herd mm-hmm. in there. Uh, in this business, $780 billion in assets under management. That's, that's mani- those are managed assets. And then another trillion dollars in brokerage assets. 
So for this one, I looked across uh, the, the asset managers out there, the Leg Masons, the T. Rowe Prices of the world, as well as the brokers, discount brokers like TD Ameritrade, uh, as well as LPL Financial, and looked at how they're valued based on the assets that they have, uh, that they're controlling. When all was said and done, I figured this business, the number I came up with, with was $36 billion, which I think, if anything, undervalues this business. Um, I, I think it was about a 12 times multiple on its earnings. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a relatively conservative valuation on that. Finally, we have an other category. There's a lot stashed in this other category. Mystery other. Yeah, there's a whole lot of Bank of America's equity that I think gets trapped in this other. However, a lot of these businesses uh, that, that I've already gone through are operating with equity cushions that I don't think would meet regu- regulatory right. standards. Actually, I'm sure they wouldn't meet mm-hmm. regulatory standards for a standalone company. So this equity in other... I think is necessary to meet regulatory standards, so I'm not willing to put a big value on it um, because it's basically been captured elsewhere in my valuations here. In other, there are, however, $2.1 billion in, in private equity and other investments, so that's the only value I put on this. Add that all up, and you get to a total value of about $186 billion. That compares to about $150 billion where Bank of America is valued today, so at the end of the day, that is a pretty nice – you could either look at it as excess potential returns on Bank of America. So you've got, you've got sort of market-related risk-based returns mm-hmm. that are standard. But then what this valuation says is that above that, you've got a little bit extra. So you can think about it that way. So you've got potential excess returns. You can also think of it as you've got a nice margin of safety, a cushion there. So within these, within these calculations here, these simplistic, admittedly simplistic calculations here, there can be some – relatively large mistakes, right? and you still do pretty well with this stock. Yeah, I think it highlights a couple of things. One is we talk about the big banks. What if they get broken up? Big banks should be broken up. I think this shows you that that's not necessarily the end of the world if you did break up a big bank for the investors there. If they got equal parts mm-hmm. in all these businesses, you could actually, the market could realize that it's a bigger value if these all aren't lumped together in one conglomerate mm-hmm. here. So that, that highlights one thing. And the second is, there are still businesses at Bank of America that do pretty well. I know we talk about the lawsuits so much and the losses, but just look at Merrill Lynch. Yes, they had enormous losses when, when it came over, but the brokerage business, the wealth management business, the markets business, those are still good businesses. They're still a worldwide leader in those businesses. So I think... It, it highlighted some very interesting points that we don't think about Bank of America. We, we lump it into this one beast. Right. But, it, but if you can take – it's not just Bank of America either. If you take all of these businesses and break them into parts, they become much more digestible and much more easy to understand. Right. There's this entity that's like, oh, this is horrible. Mm-hmm. But then you break it up into pieces and it's like, oh, that's kind of a, a nice little business there. That's right. And good returns. I, I think it's – you don't have to go – into the weeds. I know you didn't go too much into the weeds, but no, this is I think I think any any company that someone owns, they could do a kind of just back of the envelope math. What are the businesses here? What do comparable businesses trade? So I think it's a good exercise, even if you're not trying to, to base a decision on it, mm-hmm. but to, for stuff you already own, say, okay, what's going on here? How is the business performing and how is it valued? Exactly. So yeah, go check out the article. It's on fool.com. Yes, And you can subscribe to uh, the stress test column, which is on Twitter as That's well. Right. That's right. At TMF stress, stress test. TMF stress test. And you update that every week. Every, every Thursday, week, every Thursday, Thursday is the column. Every Thursday is the column. All right. Speaking of things that our readers, our listeners and viewers mm-hmm. can do, they can send us emails. And so let's head to the mailbag. Today, we've got an email from Kevin McMullen. And Kevin writes, I'm currently a Two Harbors shareholder. And while I'm still optimistic about their business and management team in the long term, 
I'm worried about potential losses during this time of interest rate uncertainty. Can you provide examples of investments that would be a good hedge with mortgage REITs and companies that fare well when interest rates rise? Before you start answering, David, our email address, WTMI at fool.com. That's WTMI at fool.com. Emails. All right. Answer. Tell the man what to do. There's oh, no, don't tell him what to do. We can't. Don't do tell him what to do. But tell him in theory. Answer the question. Yeah, answer the um, question. There are businesses out there that, that that benefit when interest rates rise, but it, it really depends on why are interest rates rising. I, I mean, one that's kind of obvious is our traditional banks, traditional just lending and deposit banks. If the yield curve gets steeper, so interest rates are higher on the on the longer duration of the curve and stay pretty low. Mm-hmm. That can be a really good thing for these these banks that have a lot of deposits and they're looking for a place to put them. I mean, I, I know the securities on their books could fall in value just like what's happening at Two Harbors, but if they have deposits they can put to work and the economy's improving, they can make a lot more money, a lot more cash flow coming in into the business that can go to that can go to shareholders through dividends. So I think the general banks, the PNCs of the world, the Bank of Americas of the world, mm-hmm. I think they can benefit in a rising interest rate environment. W- what do you think? Do you have any more? Do you have any niche players here for them? Well, one thing that I say is Two Harbors itself, is, and I think you were pointing this out the other day, uh, has been investing in mortgage servicing rights, and that mortgage servicing rights benefit in a rising interest rate right. environment. And so there's no question provide- about that. If interest rates go up, mortgage servicing rights will go up in value. It's a, right. it's a guaranteed there. So that'll provide a little bit of a natural hedge inside two harbors. I think you're right about the banks. I, I think the same holds for insurance companies. Now, yep. the thing is, is that with most financial companies, they own assets uh, today. And so a lot of those assets, particularly the fixed income ones, will have some short-term pain as interest rates rise. But the bigger picture is, and, and I, a lot of the bankers have been talking about this, is that it's a short-term pain thing, but then over the longer term, uh, it's a it's a benefit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, insurance too, especially we talk about the reinsurance market. People, a lot of people coming into the reinsurance market looking for yield. If interest rates go up, maybe some of those people leave, and, re- and the market can get a little bit more favorable for the people that are actually reinsurers. And Good point. Uh, there could be some opportunity there. So it might take some people out of these certain niche markets. All right. Thanks for the email, Kevin, and everybody else. WTMI at fool.com. Moving on to the game for today. We're going to do a little bull bear. We're going to do a little bull bear on Berkshire Hathaway. Regular viewers and listeners of this show may not realize that we even acknowledge that there is a bear case for Berkshire Hathaway. I don't recognize it. (laughs) That's why I'm the bull here. And I'm going to start before before you start spinning your lies. Uh, The the Berkshire bull case, Warren Buffett. I'm done. That's it? do you need that's all you're prepared. That's all. My notes here just says Buffett. Okay. No, no, seriously. <laughs> seriously, that's what it says here. Um, it's a collection of great businesses. Uh, you've got Buffett, of course, managing. Capital allocation is just such an unappreciated uh, big contributor, huge contributor to long-term returns. And there are few capital allocators out there as good as Warren Buffett or as focused on capital allocation as Warren Buffett. Um, you've got a great amount of diversification within. A lot of people focus on the insurance businesses, but there are a lot of retail businesses here. Everything from the Pampered Chef to Brooks Running um, to uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroads. Mm-hmm. A lot of diversification there. And, uh, and you get great returns. It's not just what's uh, on the net income line. It's also stuff that you don't see on the net income line, like the appreciation of the investments that haven't been sold yet. And finally, at 1.3, 1.3 times uh, book value, 
I still, I still think that this is a pretty solid investment. I think it's a solid investment, probably up until 1.5 times book value. All right, fair case. Try it. That's a fair, fair bull case there. And Berkshire Hathaway obviously been an, an awesome performer over the time Warren Buffett's been there. But if we look obviously, over, obviously, if we look over the past 10 years, though, total return at Berkshire, 115 percent. That's solid, right? S and P, 105 percent. So outperforming, but. Not totally, and you could I, you could argue that it's potentially less risky than than the S and P. I could I could hear I that would argument. Say so. Okay, that, that, that's fair. Um, Plus, that's outperformance. So it's it has your, been your it, bear cases that it didn't beat the S and P. I'm saying going forward, we're, we're forward looking here, and the mix of the businesses is changing from insurance and investment to more of an operating business here. And when we look at the operating businesses, the railroads, the energy uh, businesses. Maybe they can't grow like they used to and build the book value. I mean, it's probably going to be less volatile because they're relying less on insurance and investment. It's going to be more stable. But I'm not sure if the growth is quite there. And if we just look at this from, I know it's a little silly just to look at market cap, but it's a $283 billion company. For this stock to double and become an almost $600 billion company over the next 10 years, that's... That's ambitious, in my opinion. I think a lot has to happen. I think they have to keep making a lot of really good moves. And when you look at the guy allocating, I know it's, we don't like to talk about it, but he is, what, 83 years old and Charlie Munger's over 90. So, yes, I'm sure they have a successor in place. I, I would trust Buffett. He's earned that trust. But it's not a guarantee that there's going to be a guy who's a, a wizard that comes in here and does everything exactly the way they should. So if I'm taking a 10-year view here for this stock to double, which would be pretty solid return, annual solid returns over the next 10 years. I mean, I would definitely take a double over 10 years. On, on, this, on this kind of company, yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I see that there's, there's not a lot of maybe downside here, but I think the upside maybe is a little bit more challenging, especially maybe the, maybe the U.S. economy doesn't grow like gangbusters. This is very heavily dependent on the U.S. here. I mean, I think not, around 90% of the revenue comes from the United States. So you're not getting a ton of international exposure here. I know you get it through the businesses and through the holdings. I know Coca-Cola is a big international company, but that's the bear case there. And at 1.35 times book value, that's not a bargain basement price. So that's my bear case. There you have it. You've heard it here, folks. Bull case, bear case. We want to know what they think, right? Yeah, tweet at us. E- tweet at us, at TMF Financials. Email us, WTMI at fool.com. Are you bull or bear on Berkshire Hathaway? And give some points, and, too. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to hear how I'm wrong. Yeah. yeah. Or and, how Matt's wrong, oh, and you which w- is more likely. You're, <laughs> you're kidding. All right, let's finish it off here. Twitter sphere, Twitter sphere, the now public Twitter. David, what's our first Twitter? We're going to have to disclose that every time now. Gosh, now it's a public oh, company. Oh, yeah, that's right. All right, uh, we have the first one. For, I do not. We have the first one from Crowd Turtle, one of our favorites. He says, Jobs report analysis is slightly more useful than using stars to determine my life path. And this is kind of what we talked about earlier. I don't. Using stars to determine life path, way underrated. Would you use that? <laughs> you okay. okay. You maybe, maybe you disagree with Crowd Turtle there then. Uh, like we said earlier, he seems to agree with us that you can't base your life decisions, your investment decisions off, oh, jobs report, it's 204,000 jobs. Everything's great. I see it as noise. Well, it's not just that. It's also basing off of one month of data, which there, there's so much noise month to month. There's so many revisions that are happening. So, yes, but I'm still planning my life based on the stars. Second tweet. This A regular is, listener. Yes, yes, Wooter. Uh, this is Wooter Kleefstra. That's at Wooter Kleefstra. That's his Twitter handle. Signs of improving economy equals big gains for banks. And then he tags JP Morgan and PNC. I'm smiling, David. 
I am smiling. I wanted to give a shout out to Twitter. He's one of our most diehard listeners there. Yeah. So we really appreciate it. We wanted to give him a shout out on the Twitter sphere. And I think his tweet makes sense. We just talked about the jobs report it doesn't impact my investing decisions based on if the number's high or low. But it does point to the economy getting better, which is good for these banks. We talked about them being able to make loans at higher rates, driving more fees. JP Morgan, PNC, they definitely benefit. So I agree with him that a better economy obviously does make for a better banking system. Boom. Last, last tweet of the last day. Last tweet of the day. Last tweet of the week. This one is from Epicurean Dealmaker. Ma- deal and you know those lists that are in People magazine? It's like the top 40, under 40, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So this is kind of what they're talking about. He says, 100 under 100 who couldn't accurately guess the non-farm payrolls number if their lives depended on it. Hashtag realistic X under X lists. Matt, if there was an X under X list, what would you be on? I would be the 40 under 40. That have a grimy beard. (laughs) <laughs> they still can't grow a beard. Actually, I would be on the 30 over 30 who still can't grow a beard. Oh, that's a very good list. That is a good I'm list. I'm going to submit that to people and submit a picture of you. <laughs> no, that, it would just, just scare them. Just we'll scare see. Them. Like, that's a horrible beard. What about you? Oh, man. Come on, you asked me. You put me on the spot and you don't even have anything? Uh, the 30 under 30 that have a bearish case for Berkshire Hathaway. There's not many out there, but I'm uh, not one of them. Might be more than more than you think. Maybe. All right, folks, that is the show for today. That is the show for the week. I, unfortunately, will be out Monday and Tuesday next week, but we'll have some great guests here with David, including Morgan Housel on Tuesday. It'll be a fun time. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you next week.